Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. We're also streaming at WCEV1450.com. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors over at IFN, that's Islamic Foundation North, and ICN, that's Islamic Center of Naperville, for their support. Thank you very much. And um, we invite you, if you have not already done so, make sure that you are connected to us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. We are definitely on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and tune in, and you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Um, Ramadan Mubarak family, that's right. Blessed Ramadan to all of you. I pray your fast is going well. Uh, that the month is productive, is reflective, renewing all of those wonderful things that we aspire to uh, during this month. But also, as we fast, it is important that we remember that there are many uh, here uh, and abroad who are prohibited from fasting, from enjoying the sense of sacrifice that we get uh, from our experience of the fast because they fast their fast is one that is prolonged, uh, or it's a fast that's interrupted. So whether we're talking about famine, or we're talking about uh, refugees, or whatever the situation might be, uh, it's important for us to realize that it is a blessing indeed for us to be able to engage the fast of our own free will, knowing that at the end of the day, we have the pleasure of breaking that fast, and we're able to come together for, for prayer, uh, and all of the wonderful things that we look forward to and appreciate about this beautiful religion of ours. So that being said, you all know that Sound Vision has taken up the mantle of uh, bringing attention to the injustices. That's probably the lightest, right, the lightest way that I could say this. Uh, but the outright humanitarian crisis, that's really the better way to say it, the outright humanitarian crisis that is taking place in China right now. Our Uyghur brothers and sisters, uh, Muslims of um, Turkic uh, origin, ethnicity, they are, they have been rounded up uh, over a million. Uh, and I believe I've, I've read uh, in, in some spaces that the numbers are over two million and, and, and steadily going up uh, in concentration camps that are dubbed as re-education centers. But the simple fact of the matter is the freedoms that we enjoy here, they are not afforded to our brothers and sisters there. So go to saveuyghur.org. That's saveuyghur.org, U-I-G-H-U-R dot O-R-G. You can find out more information, and you can also find out how you can lend your voice to help uh, bring attention to this and to just show your solidarity. So... What we're about to listen to, we're going to listen to uh, an interview with Rashan Abbas, who is a Uyghur activist. She was born in the eastern Turkestan region, which the Chinese government calls Xinjiang. Uh, she's been living in the United States for many years, and she has often spoken about the persecution of her people. She was recently quoted in a New York Times article regarding how the U.S. is silent about human rights when negotiating trade with China. Rashan Abbas gave a speech at the University of Chicago a few weeks ago. 
and we were fortunate enough to invite her to our studios. Before we listen to the interview, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we will listen to executive producer Abdul Malik Mujahid interview Rashan Abbas. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Hey everyone, let's all stop what we're doing and take a moment. You see, every moment can be kind of special. But they could be loud moments, goofy moments, dorky moments, it doesn't matter. Because every time dads like us take a moment like that to spend with our kids, well, it's pretty momentous. So let's take a moment to make a moment. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? Uh, what? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. Uh, we are not going to waste a lot of time. Uh, remember, find us on social media at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also wherever you get your podcast at Radio Islam USA. Subscribe, rate, review, share all of that great stuff. Uh, we've got a great interview for you uh, between executive producer Abdul Malik Mujahid and Roshan Abbas. Uh, we are activists. We told you about that at the opening. We're going to go ahead and get into that now. Assalamu alaikum, Sister Roshan Abbas. Wa salam. Thank Hi. you for giving me this opportunity. Well, welcome to Radio Islam, uh, and uh, it's uh, good to have you in our offices. Thank you. Uh, Roshan Abbas runs Campaign for Uyghur.org, and it has been uh, in place for a while, but uh, it was just yesterday attacked? This morning. This morning it was attacked. So what was the attack like? Um, on the April 9th, 
I testified at the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee subcommittee. That is day before yesterday. Yes, day before yesterday, and then right after testifying um, at the Senate subcommittee, I flew over to Los Angeles, and I received a uh, Freedom Fighter 2019 award by one of the news organizations. Um, then I flew back all night with red eye flight and then went to work. Um, so this morning when I woke up, um, after sleeping only for like uh, 45 minutes, preparing for my uh, speech for this panel today, and then um, I had to take care of some work and I wrote a press release uh, about the uh, testimony at the Senate and the answering some of the uh, uh, side questions. Um, I didn't sleep all night just working on all that, and I uploaded to my website. Then when I got to the airport this morning, I find out that uh, my website got hacked. Mm. Uh, tell me, uh, you know, you're an Uyghur. When was the last time you were in uh, uh, eastern Turkestan or Xinjiang? My last trip was 2005, almost 14 years ago. Okay. So, so when was when when did you leave? I was born and raised in Urumqi, the capital city of the East Turkestan. Um, went to university there. I was educated at the Xinjiang University. Um, during my years especially when I was at the university, 1984 to 88, was the, uh, the most relaxed time for the uh, communist China, just opening up to the West. Um, so we were a little bit free to do what we want at that time. Um, I was one of the organizers for the pro-democracy demonstration in 1985. We call it 12-12-85. December 12, 1985, uh, more than 20,000 Uyghur students demonstrated on the streets in uh, Urumqi. Um, and then the current World Uyghur Congress president, Mr. Dolkan Issa, is my colleague from university. And he established an organization, uh, Students Scientific and the Cultural Association, and I was his vice president at that time. And together we did a lot of work, pro-democracy work, raising awareness work among the uh, students. And then uh, our organization led the second student demonstration in 1988. Um, I left Rumchi in 1989, uh, came to United States. I came to Washington State as a student. So what were the this organization which you're talking about, and they had demonstration of 22,000 people, that's substantial for Oromuchi uh, in China. Mm -hmm. um, what were they asking for when they were demonstrating? We were, um, that was against the, uh, the suppressive, brutal policies of the Chinese government. Um, at that time, they were actively doing nuclear testings in East Turkestan in the Lopnur region. And we had a lot of side effects of the radiations. And also, they were conducting uh, only two 
children policies for the Uyghurs. Um, and we were just asking for uh, more democracy, more self-autonomy, and also asking to stop the nuclear testing, stop the uh, uh, two children policies. Um, so basically it was more like a, uh, asking for human rights, uh, respecting for human dignity. So those people who are demonstrating is all the leadership out of, uh, out of uh, that area or there some of them are still in China? Um, yes, there are some of some of our colleagues are still in China, and we heard that they are in the concentration camps now. Mm. Uh, the twenty thousand students demonstration in the eighty five twelve twelve was not only from the Xinjiang University that was um, that started in our university. We started and then we sent. Um, students to other universities like Xinjiang uh, Medical University, um, the Industrial University, and the uh, uh, the uh, altogether seven universities in in uh, East Turkestan in Urumqi um, joined us in solidarity. Mm -hmm. The second one, uh, 1988, was only. Uh, Xinjiang University students. And at that time, the this did the Chinese government uh, reacted against the, how how was their reaction? Because 85, 88 is the area in which they were little more open, little more democracy. For the 85, um, the most of the people who graduated at that time um, didn't get jobs. Basically, um, they were sent to like remote areas. On the 88, our president of the association and also our current president of the World Oil Congress, Mr. Rolkanesa, he got expelled from the university. Um, as a vice president myself um, in 1988 when I graduated, also I studied very well and at that time my major was biology. I graduated from the biology department. And already, the Agricultural University um, asked for me to come and work for them when I graduated. But because of those demonstrations and its effect, I ended up not having a job. Hmm. So, so they didn't attack the demonstration, but uh, tried to persecute and work against those people who are leading that. So why do you think uh, Chinese government, who tolerated demonstrations, uh, has reached this level uh, that they absolutely are not allowing any type of, uh, actually people are doing nothing, but they're being still arrested. So, so w what do you think has taken China in that direction? Right after the Great Cultural Revolution, which lasted from 66, 67 till 77, um, after China opened up to the West, uh, established the uh, diplomatic relationship with the United States in 1979, uh, China started to open up a little bit, especially when they were asking to get the most favorite nation status um, and try to get the West's attention um, and the, to have like a trade relationship with the West. They 
act like they are opening up. And that was the time. That's why we didn't get the immediate attack or arrest, but we got retaliated by not having jobs or getting expelled from the universities. Then, eventually, when China started to uh, economically and the uh, um, military-wise got stronger, um, they thought that this is the time to pursue the wish they always had, uh, which is the uh, challenging Western democracy. And also, um, after Xi Jinping came into power, uh, Xi Jinping's uh, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is the uh, blueprint for world domination, um, East Turkestan lies in the epic center of that plan. Um, East Turkestan not only being the most resourced land, having the petroleum and natural gas and the all other um, resources, East Turkestan is also gateway to the Central Asia, to Europe and Africa. Um, so Xi Jinping saw the Uyghurs as the obstacle on his dream for the world domination. And that's why I think they started the So you Ukraine. think a combination of Chinese arrogance, now that they have a trillions of dollars worth of surplus, and uh, also for, the, for future expansion, both things are contributing to what they're doing. Uh, you must have a whole lot of people uh, who are, uh, uh, you know them, and they're in concentration camp. Uh, can you share with us uh, some of the people which you personally know? I know a lot of uh, my colleagues, friends, neighbors, um, distant relatives. Immediately, actually my immediate families, my in-laws, my husband's entire family, my mother and the father-in-laws, three of my sister-in-laws, their husbands, my brother-in-law and his wife, 14 of my husband's nieces and nephews, they're all taken. The entire family from Khotan, which is the southern part, which hit the most with this mass incarceration, the entire family is gone. The house is basically shut down, locked up. Um, therefore, when I spoke about this atrocity, with my personal experience, the fate of my in-laws. On September 5th, 2018, um, at the Hudson Institute, one of the think tanks in Washington, D.C., six days later, my own sister and my aunt, they both were abducted that same day. On September 11th, 2018, my sister, who's a uh, retired medical doctor, and my aunt, who was a housewife, they both were taken at the same day, although they are 1,400 kilometers away from each other. One lives, my sister lives in Urumqi, in the capital city. My aunt lives in uh, Atush, a small town nearby Kashgar. Just to send me a message, just to retaliate my activism in the United States, 
although I am a U.S. citizen for past 25 years. Also, whatever I was doing here is legal and is protected under, my, under our Constitution here in the United States. But uh, my sister and my aunt became the victims for my activism here in my country. So when the, you know, the whole in-laws and their relatives uh, in concentration camps and uh, uh, so what happened? They sent police, they sent army, or these are uh, uh, people who are not uniform, who kidnap. How, how do they take these people? Because of the information blockade, we don't know the details. They just disappear, just like my sister. She just disappeared. For my in-laws, my husband was talking with his mother and the, with his father um, every a couple of days. All of the sudden, April 2017, when he called, the cell phones didn't work, home phone no one answered, and tried to call his nephews and the nieces and the sisters and the brother-in-laws. No one's phone is on, just, it's just completely shut down. Then later he got the message from some people in Turkey telling him that his brother was sentenced for 20 years and the entire family is taken. 14 of his nieces and the nephews, we don't know what happened to them. They are age three to 18. They're, we are afraid that they are taken to some orphanages somewhere. We don't know what happened to those kids. So is the absence of information on which you assume they are in concentration camp? That's what we assume. Otherwise, they will contact, or they, if, if they are living in the house. I mean, come on, this is the information world with technology The China is claiming to be on the top. Why we cannot hear anything about our family members? If they are out, if they are free, they all had cell phones. They all had phones at home. They have internet. My husband should be able to contact them. But later he also heard that the house was locked up. There's nobody living in the house. Where are they if they are not in their own house? Now, these attacks and taking people away and all that, uh, do they do this more in certain area than the other, like Khotan you mentioned as compared to Rumuchi? So there'll be more people taken away from Khotan than uh, Rumuchi? It started in the um, where the, the Uyghurs are populated the most, the areas Uyghurs are populated the most, which is Khotan, Kashgar, Aksu. And then later on, it's becoming a massive in Urumqi as well. Um, recently, starting from like beginning of this year, like last December 2018, January 2019, we are hearing almost all of the famous singers, comedians, pop stars from Urumqi are taken. For example, Rashida Dawood, she was the most famous uh, pop star singer. She was taken in late December. And the Gulbahar um, Mahmoud, and also Adil Mijid, who's the Canadian, who's the comedian, um, they are all from Urumqi. But before that, 
like in 2018, we were hearing a lot, uh, all the rich and the famous and the intellectuals, university professors uh, were taken from uh, all over, but mainly concentrated in Kashgar and the Khotan. We are hearing about 40% of the entire populations are gone. We, we so how come they keep talking one million people if 40% population is gone? Scott Busby, one of the officials from State Department, said on the December 8th when he testified at front of Senate, it's more than 800,000 um, as, no, it's Could a, be as high yeah, as two million. Could be as high as two million. And then in February, Senator Tom Cotton when he spoke at the Hudson Institute, he said several million. Those are their numbers. They are not the numbers we are giving. Those are the, the numbers that the U.S. State Department or U.S. Intel, in, um, intelligence is giving. Um, unfortunately, it's difficult to verify because, and another thing we are facing today is moving a lot of Uyghur population to China proper putting them in the in jail in Gansu, Heilongjiang, in uh, Ningxia, and uh, Inner Mongolia. Peter Winter reported, like six months ago, more than 500,000. And now it's even more. So we are afraid probably about a million Uyghurs already transferred to China proper, and they are there waiting to die. They are being served one light meal a day, starving to death, basically. Um, when information is so difficult to get out, um, uh, but still we know you mentioned that one meal a day they are giving them, and probably they are giving them haram food, not halal food. They don't care for any of those things. How this type of information gets out? I mean, uh, is some people are released from that prison? Um, we do have some former detainees being released. They are talking about the conditions of the camps. We have Mikhrigul Tursun, who was detained there. Also, uh, Sairagul from Kazakhstan, and we have Gulbahar um, in Turkey, and we also have a few others, um, like Umar Bebekuli and Kairat Samarkand. So we do have former detainees there testifying. Another good source of uh, information coming is from Chinese people. The Bitter Winters doing excellent job interviewing Chinese uh, jail guards, and also um, they have like uh, tons of reporters there. But recently, more than two dozen of uh, bitter winter Chinese reporters are being arrested. They disappeared also. And also Radio Free Asia, Uyghur Service is doing excellent job being an investigative reporting. Um, they are doing the investigative reporting. They are calling some Chinese officials. They are calling uh, some uh, like... Uh, county uh, government officials asking questions. So there are some information uh, coming from Radio Free Asia, Uyghur service. Uh, you mentioned Radio Free Asia, and uh, you know, I have uh, 
for last five, six years, um, I have a Facebook page um, and things like that on, on this issue. And people here and there comment, this is all CIA propaganda, this all American propaganda. And you mentioned Radio Free Asia that, of course, is funded by the U.S. government as well. Uh, how do we, uh, you know, uh, the witnesses are there. Uh, people have a huge amount of stories. Uh, why do you think uh, uh, China is successful in being a skeptic about what is happening? Because China is using the economy, trade, and the leveraging their debt trap tactics, and also being the second largest donor to United Nations, influencing other governments to speaking up. Um, for the uh, people who are saying that this is uh, like a CIA making up or it's not like that, this U.S. is exaggerating, well, the concentration camps, the satellite images was discovered by a Chinese student, a Chinese guy from Vancouver, British Columbia. He's not even American. He's not Uyghur. He's a Chinese uh, man. When he was hearing those on the news, he didn't believe it, just like everybody else. He had questions. He also heard that this is maybe US government's uh, motivation or exaggeration. So he decided to do some research on his own, and he actually discovered massive tons of uh, concentration camps via using satellite images. And also, um, Adrian Zanz, one of the academic, he did excellent job monitoring the government papers, like bids for construction, um, announcements for uh, workers, like uh, uh, guards for the camps, or, uh, yes, another thing, um, all of a sudden, massive announcements are coming up for uh, workers hiring uh, work, to hire workers to work at crematorias. Muslims do not believe in a cremation. Why are they building crematorias next to the concentration camps, hiring massive employees. That's a warning sign. The world needs to pay attention to that. Um, <clears throat> tell us, uh, I mean, you told us about your in-laws and your sister and your other relatives. Um, those people which you have spoken to, uh, I mean, you have experience uh, and you have been working on this cause for a very long period of time, essentially since you were a student. And uh, uh, so share with us some of those uh, uh, personal stories of people. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, orphanages. I know personally a lady who went to Turkey as a student, Dilnur. Um, when she went to Turkey to study, she left two of her children with her parents. And then she, she got a text message from her daughter 
asking to return immediately. She knew by that time the Uyghur students returned from Egypt and the Turkey. They are just disappearing. So she decided not to return. Two of her children taken from her parents' custody and taken to orphanages. Until today, she doesn't know where her children are. And also, we have news accounts from Radio Free Asia. An Uyghur man living in Turkey, he saw Chinese government propaganda video for one of these boarding schools, Chinese boarding schools. The little kids is singing Chinese communist propaganda song. That was his son that he lost contact. He recognized his son from government released propaganda video. And I also know several young Uyghur girls living in Boston and New York. They came here as students, young girls, like late, like teenagers, like 19, 18 years old, some are early 20s, 21, 22. They came here as students. Their parents were sending them money. So they were just concentrating on their studies. All of a sudden, their parents are gone. Some families, both parents, some families, the fa husband, father is gone. And the Chinese government frees up all the financial assets, and they don't have any money to continue their schools, can't pay tuition, can't pay their rent, and then they have to worry about their younger siblings, their younger brothers and sisters, their, their whereabouts. They don't know what happened to their siblings when the, both parents are taken away. This is just from people around me, that people I talk to. If you talk to the Uyghurs in diaspora, every single person, they know stories like I just told you. These are, these are the kind of stories becoming so common. Every single Uyghur in America, they know at least a dozen people from their families or friends are taken or missing. I have read in one of the Chinese um, news um, online magazine, this was like uh, six months ago, over 500,000 Uyghur students, I mean Uyghur children, over 500,000 Uyghur children are taken to orphanages. The numbers are huge. The Chinese government targeting the younger generations, so they can assimilate them, the brought them with Chinese ideology, raised them as atheists. And also they are targeting Uyghur women because most of the Uyghur men are locked up. If a family has a girl, and then like unmarried, if someone, some official or some, some ordinary Chinese guy know that this family has an Uyghur girl, they will come and ask for marriage. She doesn't know him. She doesn't love him. I have nothing against the intermarriage if it's come from love. But 
This is like the girl or family. They can't refuse this marriage. If they say no, the girl and the, the parents, if she has parents, if not, then girl herself will go to the internment. They will go to the concentration camp for being nationalist, rejecting the Han national Han uh, person. We are Muslim. The Muslim girls cannot marry non-Muslim guys. But you can't reject that. If you say that, then you are religious extremist. Then you ended up going to jail. I have talked to some people that they know personally. Some girls are killing themselves when such a, um, what we call it, like a... Forced. Uh, yeah, when, when a few people come in to ask her marriage, she will jump from the seven eighth floor window, just kill herself so she doesn't have to marry or her parents doesn't have to say yes, or if they say no, they are not going to go to the concentration camp. What a tragedy. I would call this, this is not marriage. This is like raping the Uyghur Muslim women. Islam is, Islam is completely banned. There is no any kind of normal Islamic exercise. You can't pray. You can't have Quran or prayer rugs at home. They were burning all the Qurans and the prayer rugs because if some families, if they get caught with a prayer rug at home or a Quran at home, that will be the reason for you to go to the concentration camp. You can't ask if this food has pork or if the food you are eating is halal. AP reported 1.1 million Chinese cadres sent to the Muslim homes. Imagine your living rooms, your dining rooms, even your bedrooms. You have these uninvited guests coming and living with you. They bring you food. You can't ask what kind of meat this food that they brought in. You have to eat that, knowing that could be pork. I'm sure it is pork. They are bringing that to test you. They are turning your children against you. They are asking children to spy on their parents if they pray or if they say Allah or if they have any kind of anti-Chinese or anti-communist ideas. What kind of psychology that the, the children will, will leave the children with? Where do you see the future lies? I mean, China has uh, accumulated quite a bit of wealth, trading with the U.S. and other open countries. And now it has turned back to the policies of, which may be worse than the Cultural Revolution. And, uh, and most people 
have hard time believing uh, and that's why they think it's a propaganda when first time i heard someone told me that she has uh, six sisters and all her husband taken to concentration camp and children taken to orphanage and there is a chinese man in each one of those homes i simply couldn't believe i i, I was careful enough so my face doesn't give out i don't believe but then i started research and i have so many people saying the same thing and uh, so so with chinese power and good part and they being in the security council to veto everything they want to veto uh, what what is it which you think uh, will influence to force china to back out currently the uh, trade negotiations going united states government and also the other economically independent countries such as the uh, 5i countries and the g20 countries they really need to stand up and the uh, the global magnetsky act the laws in place we really need to move forward with sanctioning some of the chinese officials who are responsible for this atrocity Trump administration really needs to include human rights in the foreign policy when they deal with China and we really need to have this Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act and also the uh, UIGHUR Act the HR 1025 so we have these two um, bills currently we really need to see that pass being passed There are a lot of talks but it, only the talk is not enough because every day passes by we have the Uyghurs are suffering and dying so we really need to have some actions following the words now in Urumqi the city where you were born you were born in Urumqi right so in that city was that city at one time has uh, the muslim uh, population or uyghur in 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 majority when i was child and when i was growing up the uyghurs were majority yes in 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 the capital city urumqi yes in urumqi the capital city that's where i was born and raised the Uyghurs were majority. Um, I left Urumqi in 1989. Even then, the Uyghurs were majority. But last 30 years, it changed rapidly. And now I think it's only like one or two percent population is Uyghur. Hmm. So they have kicked out more Uyghur or brought more Chinese there? Both. Hmm. Um, this uh, recent deterioration uh, of the situation last 2-3 years they uh, sent all the the other uyghurs who came into urumqi doing business or living there they kicked them back and then they were subject to uh, incarceration when they went back and they brought massive massive uh, 
Chinese Han population. East Turkestan is known for the solution for the overpopulated Chinese population, the population density in the other part of the, uh, the, the China proper. Um, Tibet, they can't use Tibet like that because of the high altitude. They can't just massively move Han Chinese to Tibet because of the high altitude, the Chinese people cannot really uh, adjust, be able to adjust to the climate there. But uh, for East Turkestan, um, it's like a pouring water to the sand, basically. Mm. So, so this policy, you think, is, uh, uh, is, is engineering to get rid of uh, your people uh, bring uh, more Hans people there, Chinese, uh, and uh, sort of uh, change the future of that area. Uh, when children are being raised as communists, I mean, there are enough communists who already, who are Uyghur and communist, and they're part of these, uh, the whole set. Uh, so are there some Uyghur who are communist, but at the same time they have, their Muslim have sympathy with Islam and sympathy with their culture? Are they completely, are the agents of the Chinese government? Because the leader of that area is himself a uh, Uyghur communist, right? So how, so, so do you think those people think once children are raised communist, uh, they will be in, uh, they, they will not have a quote-unquote an Uyghur problem? With the current situation, no matter what they have in their heart, they have to say what the, uh, the Chinese ideology, communist ideology, or what the government is requesting them to say, even if they don't have that in their hearts. Um, because the Chinese government always try to make those Uyghur officials to make statements. Um, I don't think anybody who has Uyghur blood in their heart and born as Muslim, raised as Muslim, um, even if they deny that they are atheists and they don't recognize Allah and they, they are not Muslim and that they eat pork, but that's not something coming from their heart, but that's coming out of fear and the uh, afraid of uh, being uh, uh, facing repercussion if they don't say that. So, <clears throat> are some of those uh, uh, who are communist and part of the government and part of involving, are some of those also sent to concentration camps because they might uh, suspect them of not being a very honest uh, communist? We have many examples of that. Um, I know a gentleman in Virginia, uh, Bahram Sintaj. His father worked 40 years as a member of a communist uh, party, um, worked 40 years for a state-owned um, Magazine. He's in a concentration camp today. Father. Mm -hmm. mm. And uh, Nur Bakri, who was the uh, governor of East Turkestan, 
work diligently to the communist uh, Chinese government. He's arrested now, the mm -hmm. highest official. And he was governor or he was sitting governor or past governor? Um, he was, he was the past, past governor. governor, past governor. But even after he uh, was moved to Beijing, he was replaced. He worked for like a energy ministry. He was the highest position, like political office holder in, in entire history. Uh, there's no any, any other Uyghur became in such a high position in China, in Beijing. He's being arrested. So as long as you are Uyghur, no matter what you do, at the end... So whether you practice religion or not, whether you're secular or religious, whether you're communist or secular, they will still get you. Yes. If not today, then tomorrow. Hmm. So this thing seems to have no ideological basis, but more racism basis. Everything what's happening, well, only reason for my sister, for my husband's entire family, and the, all the other millions of Muslims, their only crime is being Uyghur Muslims, religion and ethnic identity. The Chinese ambassador to the U.S., Ambassador Tsui, he openly stated, there was a report in CNN last year, he said, we are trying to make the Uyghurs as normal persons. So basically, everything that made the Uyghurs unique, the culture, the language, the history, the ethnic identity, the religion, in the eyes of the Chinese government, that's the abnormality. They are treating Islam as a mental disease. They announced it openly, the Chinese government announced openly that they're sinifying Islam to make it compatible with communist ideology. What kind of religion, not alone Islam, would any kind of religion become compatible with atheist communist ideology? Very sadly, the entire Muslim states are standing still. They are not saying anything. You mentioned uh, Magnexi Act and all these things. They require to identify individuals who are doing that. I mean, they, they don't go after China as a government or Xinjiang Autonomous Region as a region. They want to go after individual, that this individual did this thing. Uh, are some reports coming up which individual is doing what? We do have a um, list of the names. I think there's like uh, 15 or 17 names that are given to State Department. Um, of course, the top of the list is Chinchuengo. Um, but uh, we have people who are responsible, like head of the police bureau, um, the head of the, uh, the person who's in charge for the incarcerations, for the, uh, the concentration camps. Um, I'm not familiar exactly who's who, but I know there's a list, mm -hmm. and the list was given to uh, the State Department. Um, the World Oil Congress and the Human Rights Project is working on that. 
You know, the, in in U.S., um, there is a law of genocide. It's a, it's a domestic law. It's not a international thing. And it has a punishment of that law. And also, uh, if an American citizen uh, or anybody, uh, you know, in a lot of European uh, countries, it doesn't matter that if you are in that country or not. If somebody is coming who has done uh, committed crimes against humanity and torture and whatnot, so you could be sitting here, if somebody is visiting Sweden, for example, uh, uh, they can file a lawsuit there and they can grab that person. Uh, so the activist, Uyghur activist, is there more focus on advocacy and getting laws passed? Are there more focus on uh, justice? Uh, I mean, of course, it is a such a personal thing for everyone. As you mentioned, you know, 10, 12 people uh, per Uyghur family in America, Uyghur person knows 10, 12 people who are in that situation. So that's a horrible thing, but, uh, you know, but what... Uh, uh, what are their priorities, what they're trying to do? Because this all happened and they came up to the surface so quickly. Um, we are learning, actually. Um, for example, myself, I always have been an activist, but uh, I am, I was not working in any of the Uyghur organizations actively. I support World Uyghur Congress, I support UAA and UHRP, but I never hold any political office. Um, but uh, with the current atrocity, uh, I just uh, I had to do something and also I have full-time job. Uh, I am trying to do this at the side. So I'm learning myself. And the same as me, they, my other colleagues. Uh, we are talking with uh, uh, genocide prevention, um, uh, the office, and the, uh, also uh, exploring all our options, talking to some law professors, um, how we can bring those uh, perpetrators to justice, how we can punish those people who are responsible for these horrendous atrocities. Um, and the advocacy work is also for that as well. I'm doing a lot of raising awareness work uh, with my uh, organization. I introduced One Voice, One Step initiative, which mobilizing um, Uyghur women around the world. Um, we did a demonstration last year, on March 15, 2018, uh, in uh, 18 cities and 14 countries. It, the demonstration lasted for 22 hours. This year, in one year anniversary, on March 15th, around March 15th, 2019, we did a photo exhibition um, displaying photos of this atrocity and raising awareness. And uh, successfully, we organized more than 30 cities and the 15 countries around the world. And we are doing all this so we can have more people mobilize, more local people, 
For example, I live in, in uh, Virginia, in the Washington, D.C. area. When you speak to the government or State Department, uh, um, the people who are in charge or in uh, some connection with Asia or China, they know. But when you talk to the Joe next door, they still don't know about the Uyghurs, about this atrocity. If we want to have the Americans to call their congressmen, call their senators, to ask them to sign the bill, sponsor the bill, we really need to activate a lot of local Americans. We need to activate the Muslim communities, which Sound Vision is doing a great job. Um, our rally on the April 6th was also in Washington, was uh, for this purpose, mobilizing the local people, raising awareness. Well, thank you so much, Mrs. Uh, Roshan Abbas, and thank you so much for coming to our studios, our support, our sympathies, uh, as well as prayers. We don't control the world, God does, but once we know it, we have a responsibility to take our action with our time and our initiative, and I hope all the listeners uh, get, get this message uh, once they hear about it. Thank you. Thank you. Inshallah. All right. Thanks for joining us. Uh, that's our program for the evening. We thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.